This is the Flying Field Podcast. Welcome to this edition of the Flying Field Podcast. The Flying Field Podcast is a service of rcplaneviews.com and the Flying Field blog. Find them at www.rcplaneviews.com. This is Episode 102, The Heroes Around Us, Part 1. It was produced the week of August 29, 2011. Hello, modelers, and thanks for joining me for this edition of the Flying Field Podcast. In this edition, we'll be varying from the normal plan of news, events, reviews, and tips, and spending much of our time with an interview with a modeler whose interesting past is worth hearing about. He is an aviator who flew 33 missions over Europe in a B-17. More about him in just a couple of minutes, but first we do want to look at a couple of important news items. In our previous episode, we reviewed the service bulletin and recall. We need to do that again today, too, but on a different recall. The folks at Horizon Hobby have several bulletins out on their new line of spectrum transmitters. You may have heard about the first one we'll discuss. It involves the DSMX transmitters and not playing nice with older DSM-2 receivers. It's what they call backward compatibility issue. Here's what they say. The Spectrum team has been investigating sporadic reports from DSMX transmitter owners using their products in DSM-2 mode. We have discovered that in some rare instances, the DSMX equipped transmitters with the product IDs within this bulletin may have a backward compatibility issue that could cause a hold with the following superseded, and I guess that means old, DSM-2 receivers, and they are these. The AR-500, the AR-6100, the 6100E, the AR-6110, the 6110E, the AR-6200, and the AR-6300. The notice goes on to say that if you have a DSM, MX transmitter with one of the following PIDs, PIDs, please complete the transmitter service request form to receive a prepaid shipping label to send your transmitter back for a free firmware upgrade. Now, the PID is located in the battery compartment of the transmitter. It's on one of the side walls, and it's a small little piece of white tape with the, uh, the numbers listed on it. And so let's go through those numbers just very briefly. If you have a DS 6i, DX5e, DX4e, you'd be looking for a PID or a product ID beginning with one of the following prefixes, HS, HH, HT, HE, or HA. If you've got a DX8, you'd be looking for one beginning with HS, HH, HT, HE, HA, HO, HM or HR. If you've got the DX7, the PID you'd be looking for is HA. And if you've got one of the JRs, the 9503s or the 9309, you'd be looking for a PID with the prefix TM or Tango Mike. 
So those are the lists of things that you'd be looking for, the, the code numbers. These radios also came in ready-to-fly kits of helicopters and other small airplanes. And if that happened to be paired with one of the uh, previously mentioned receivers, uh, there's a probability that you're going to run into this hold problem. And so you'd want to be uh, mindful of that. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I had the chance to chat with a fellow club member who'd been a B-17 pilot during World War II. He was one of the fortunate ones who completed a combat tour without being shot down, captured, or, or killed. You may recall the movie Memphis Belle and the celebration held when that crew became the first to make it to 25 missions, which was the first goal. Later, when the losses were mounting, the target number was moved even higher. Earlier this summer, one of the traveling flying fortresses stopped at the airport north of Phoenix for a few days of tours and flights. One of our club members knew the team and was able to arrange a flight for our former B-17 pilot and, with an empty seat, put me on too. I told folks it was like riding on the great-granddad of the B-52s that I flew as an Air Force pilot. After the flight, we adjourned to the restaurant at the terminal to hear some history from someone who lived it. This was part one of the interview. You'll notice some crowd noise and dishes clinking in the background, all part of the restaurant sounds while we chatted with our friend Byron Clark, who was part of the crew of the B-17 Swamp Fire. We've just gotten down from a flight in the B-17G called Liberty Bell. Tell me, what was the, your reaction to having uh, that opportunity and, and revisit some of those memories from the past? Well, you know, I, I have to say it, it's not as uh, exciting as it, it should have been because I've done this a couple of times before uh-huh. in the last couple of years. But to get in the airplane and hear the noise and see the cockpit, see the changes they've made in the airplane, the controls and whatnot. It's, uh, it brings back great memories and, and uh, anybody who's ever flown to B-17 uh, realizes it's, uh, it's a marvelous airplane, it's sturdy, it takes a tremendous amount of punishment and, mm-hmm. and uh, you have a love with, uh, for the airplane, uh, I would say probably as long as you live. I'll bet, I'll bet. I probably should mention that one of the reasons those memories are formed is because Byron has 33 combat missions over Europe, over Germany, in 1944 in a B-17G, similar to the one that we've, we've just gotten out of. Very true. So tell me, what led you to join the Army Air Corps? Well, I graduated uh, from, from high school in the uh, spring of uh, 41. And, uh, of course, we know what happened uh, about uh, Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. So everybody was uh, getting into uh, military, one, one uh, branch of the service or another. And <clears throat> I felt it was time to do it, too. So one morning I hopped on a trolley. I live in Washington, Pennsylvania, and we're 25 miles from Pittsburgh. I hopped on a trolley to go to Pittsburgh, and I... Visited the Navy enlistment station and I signed up and I took the examinations and everything and, uh, and apparently passed them and they gave me the papers to take home to for my parents to sign mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they, they were like a V2 rocket. They, uh, they, 
they thought I was crazy. And of course, uh, I hadn't told them at that time that I had uh, volunteered for sub-duty, so that made it even worse. So they said no, that they weren't going to sign the papers, and eventually they realized that I was going to get uh, drafted, so uh, they said, what do you think about the Air Force? I guess they thought I'd be safer in an airplane than in a submarine. So I volunteered then for the Army Air Corps, and uh, it took a while, everybody wanted to fly, so it took a while to get a, a class, and uh, I finally left uh, home in the uh, fall of uh, 1942 and, and uh, got my wings in the following, uh, the 1st of October, 1943. Now where did you take your primary training? Uh, I took a primary at uh, Helena, Arkansas, a little t town right on the Mississippi River mm -hmm. in a PT-19 airplane, open cockpit. My instructor's name was Jacob Beard, and I don't know how he let me, how he passed me. Uh, he overlooked a lot of mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> so some of the guys forced out, and some of us were fortunate enough to make it. And uh, uh, once we get to, uh, out of uh, primary, why well, I went to, uh, uh, I guess you want to know where I went to basic flying school, sure, sure. which is uh, up the river a little ways northeast Arkansas, northeast Arkansas at. Uh, 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 Walnut Ridge. Hmm. Okay. And we had BT-13s there. These airplanes had flaps on them and lights, and you could fly at night. The PT-19 was all daytime. Then we got 60 hours of flying, 60, 70 hours of flying time there, and uh, then they decided uh, somewhere along the line they made a decision that uh, some people would go to. Uh, Fighter planes, and mm -hmm. some would go to multi-engine airplanes. Well, and that's, I was going to ask you, did you pick bombers, or did bombers pick you? No, we all picked pea shooters. Uh, I see. Everybody, <laughs> everybody wanted to be a fighter pilot. Sure. You know? uh -huh. And uh, so I don't know. Uh, it, it seemed to me afterwards that they needed a whole bunch of B-17 co-pilots, so they'd just take major part of a class and ship you someplace for twin-engine training. And uh, and that's what happened. Uh, uh, I was sent to Seymour, Indiana for uh, advanced training in a mm -hmm. twin-engine airplane. Mm -hmm. So what was a typical day like there for you? Uh, in advance? Or? Yeah, yeah, in advance. Uh, well, of course, it was, there was always school. You got mm -hmm. up early and uh, you had, uh, you, you usually uh, you had the formation out beside the hangar. Everybody got like, counted and make sure everybody was there. and. And you'd be off to breakfast, and uh, and then it was uh, schooling uh, part of the day, maybe navigation, uh, Morse code, uh, mm -hmm. uh, weather, and uh, and then uh, you'd go for a a, uh, a flight in the afternoon, and if that was the if that was your schedule, and uh, uh, more schooling and uh, early to bed, or maybe some marching uh, before the day was over, and early to bed. And, I'll bet. I'll bet. Now, when you and your crew got to, to England, about how many hours in the B-17 did you have? Uh, I had the amount of hours that it took for operational training in Pyote, Texas. They sent me from Seymour uh, Field in Seymour, uh, Indiana, uh, to uh, Salt Lake City. And from there, I went to Pyote, Texas. I had then seen a B-17. And the next thing I knew, my rear end was in the right seat of a B-17, 
and my crew was there, the captain and mm -hmm. the eight enlisted men, or I'm sorry, the six enlisted men and the other two officers. So we trained there at Pyote, Texas. And uh, after we got through with that uh, training, while they put us on a train, we went to Grand Island, Nebraska, uh, picked up a brand new airplane, brand new shiny airplane, no paint on it or anything. It had all our stuff in it, uh, parachutes and May West and flak jackets and a 45 automatic and uh, away we went to Prescott, Maine and uh, fueled up to put as much fuel in the airplane as we could and then off to uh, Goose Bay, Labrador. Mm -hmm. And uh, Goose Bay, they wanted you to come in with as much fuel as possible because that was difficult uh, freighting fuel up there. And uh, so we were at Goose Bay, it was 40 below the night we left there, it was around Christmas time. And uh, we had a dick of a time getting the engine started. Uh, they didn't have enough muffs around the engine uh, heaters to for all four to engines at the warm, same huh? time. So we'd start two engines, one on one side and one on the other side. And the time we got the muffs on the other engines and got them all ready to fire it up and everything, the other two was so cold they wouldn't start. That's went on half the night. We finally, fortunately, didn't burn out any starters, but uh, we got them running and uh, uh, flew across the Atlantic. Uh, non-stop to uh, uh, Prestwick, Scotland. And they took that brand new airplane away from us. We were there for a couple of days and put us on a train and <coughs> shipped us down the southern part of England to a town called Bovingdon, which was kind of a distribution place for <laughs> air crew. And from there, somebody made a decision that we should go to the 379th bomb group at Kimbolton, a little town about 60 miles north of London, and uh, I think we went over there in a truck, and so that was our home for un until uh, July. And between the, the first of the year and July, I was back home. I flew the 33 missions in that short period of time. Goodness, that's amazing. So we came home. Although we flew over, we came home on a French liner. I don't know whether I can remember the name of it or not, but uh, it was wonderful, good food. <laughs> we had 4,000 German prisoners on board, and, <laughs> and our enlisted men had to work in the galley and the serve food to these uh, German people. And it was a French ship, and the French horse hated the Germans. They, they had to actually lock the Germans up to, to keep the French away from them, or they had, they had to kill them. And from what the yeah. uh, you know the atrocities that had sure, happened in sure. France during the war. So, so what was life like on a B-17 base in 1944? Anything like the movies, the show? You know, I think I think that movie, The Memphis Bell, was probably uh, there's probably a lot of authenticity to it. It uh, I noticed things into it that were quite authentic. The uh, uh, the location of the uh, the bombs in the bomb bay and the fuses, they actually had mm -hmm. fuses on the bombs and they had uh, wires, trip wires going to the fuses which stayed with the airplane when the bombs dropped and, and armed the fuses and you know, there was things like that that you noticed that uh, I thought there it was quite authentic. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think there was much of this business of laying around and uh, playing ball stuff because uh, there was a lot of mud and it was cold and chilly and the thing I remember about England I had uh, it was difficult staying warm mm -hmm. <laughs> we had we had these little coal-fired stoves in 
the room were, and it would be roaring hot when you went to bed. Somewhere in the middle of the night, it would go out, you'd be freezing when you. Yeah, like they out. say, the uh, the coldest I've ever been was a summer in London or something. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but they would come around and wake you up. Somebody would come around, and wake you up, and five o'clock or four o'clock, depending on where you were going, and and uh, you'd go have breakfast and and uh, go to the briefing room, and you're on your way. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Now you, you named your aircraft Swamp Fire. Right. What was the significance of that? Well, the significance, I named it myself. Uh, of course, we all had the option of coming up with a name, and it just so happened that they picked mine. But I had read a book sometime uh, earlier, about, I can't remember, it was a novel of some kind, but a, a lot of it was about fires in, in Florida. Mm -hmm. When they, they had the tremendous winds and the fire would sweep across the, uh, the peninsula with tremendous speed and so uh, you know, I just it just came to me, small mm -hmm. fire, and uh, that's all the significance. Yeah, it had. yeah, a story out of a book. Yeah, that's yeah, interesting. That uh -huh. Very nice. You know, your aircraft commander was a first lieutenant, young guy. Right. You were a young second lieutenant. Correct. Um, now he you... had been to Sebring, Florida. Okay. That's where they trained the, first, the, the aircraft commanders mm -hmm. to train what we call transition when you learn how to fly an airplane. He had 60 or 70 hours in the airplane when he arrived at Piote, Texas. I had none. And when we crossed the North Atlantic, North Atlantic why nobody in the airplane had more than 400 or 400 hours fly, total flying time. Total flying time. We didn't know what we were doing. Yeah. I mean, it was, the airplane was uh, so dependable and uh, the engines run so well and uh, that's why we made it. Mm -hmm. now, now being young and, and flying in wartime, how do you think that, that impacted your development as a young man and, and how did that influence you as in your life after the war? I'll tell you, it instills a tremendous amount of love for your country that I don't see nowadays. And, uh, and a lot of people, maybe my imagination, but uh, I don't want to get into the politics of mm -hmm. this, but uh, I, I think you'll find that most people that get mixed up in a war somewhere along the line defending the country uh, have a, a tremendous amount of respect for the country. And the other thing I would like to say, we, we build monuments all over the, the Europe and uh, England and here for uh, the, the soldiers and the men that fought in a war, but I think I've always thought we, we should have some kind of a monument uh, memorializing the, the, the standard citizen, uh, American citizen who deprived themselves of so much during the war, who paid the taxes to produce mm -hmm. all the equipment that we needed to fight the war. And uh, the, the British especially, they, they're an incredibly strong race. And I have so much respect for them. They, they took such a beating in the first uh, four years of mm -hmm. this, this mm -hmm. war. And, but I also have respect for the American people. My dad, where he worked and during their lunch hour, they made knives for during their lunch hour to send. I still have mine at home. It's got my name engraved right in the end of it. And, and uh, the women, uh, you've heard it all before, they, they gave their aluminum pots and pans mm -hmm. to, to the war effort. So, you know, we have to remember the, the American citizen. It was an army in, uh, in itself, in, in lockstep, and there was one, only one thing in mind, and that was, that was to, to uh, whack Hitler and Mussolini and, 
and, and the rest of the people are responsible for all this mess that we, were, we went through at those mm -hmm. times. Mm -hmm. I hope you enjoyed part one of the interview with Byron. You can learn more about the Swamp Fire by searching Google with the terms Swamp Fire and B-17. You may want to ask some questions of the senior members of your club, too. You might be surprised to find out that you have a hero among you. Part two of the interview is coming up on the next episode of the Flying Field Podcast. That brings us to the close of this edition of the Flying Field Podcast. You can find show notes at www.flyingfieldblog.rcplaneviews.com. This was episode 102. Happy modeling and fly safe.